You are now listening to Creative Masters. This is the podcast where we interview musicians, photographers, directors, comedians, designers, and other creatives to discuss how they got started, how they got past those bumps in the road, and how they built a career off their creativity. So let's get right into it. I'm your host, and I'm Team Double Machine Masters to bring you Creative Masters. Now let's start the show. What's going on, everybody? This is Reggie, a.k.a. Nobody Famous. You're listening to the Creative Masters Podcast. I just want to take a quick moment and thank everybody who's been listening to, sharing, and supporting the podcast. We greatly appreciate it. We've been getting a lot of dope, positive feedback from from you all. And we just want to say thank you for listening. And if you could, as usual, head over to iTunes if you have not done so yet and leave a review and rate us five stars if you like us. We're just trying to spread the word, get the word out there about the podcast for the community. Also, if you're a music producer or beat maker and you want to submit instrumentals to be featured on the podcast, you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and rate and subscribe and then send us an email at creativemasterspodcast at gmail.com with the name that you left the review under as well as one instrumental and we'll feature it in upcoming episodes of the podcast. The beat that you're listening to right now is by my homeboy Nova K. He's from Georgia, but he's up in NYC crushing it right now. So thank you for submitting this very dope beat. But I'm not going to waste too much of your time. We're going to go ahead and get to the episode. This week we got my man Salmonella, who's a very, very dope music producer, songwriter, engineer, vocal arranger, and many other things. He also just wrote his book, which is coming out soon. So you guys be on the lookout for that. But in this episode, we talk about OI, also known as brittle bone disease, and how that played into his life. You know, not with everyone, but there were a lot of naysayers. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of people, you're always gonna need help. Mm -hmm. You can never live on your own. You're gonna live at home for the rest of your life. I mean, it infuriated me. We also get into his post-college journey to Philly and what he had to endure to build a career out there. When I was honest with people, when I was in a train, I would sleep in the Philly train station. I didn't have a place to stay because I would just talk to the security there. Mm-hmm. I would tell them the truth. I'm a record producer, I'm, I'm looking for work, I'm not a bum. Simon also discussed his relationship with Scott Storch, his relationship with Timbaland, and how that whole deal came about. And then he's like, hey, Simon, he, by the way, here's here's Trey Songs, here's Nelly Furtado, he's introducing me to like, you know, I was in a room once and like, Diddy was behind me and Lil Wayne was next to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, what is good? I'm in my late 20s going, here Here we go. Finally, we talk about inspiration and why you shouldn't wait for someone to give you permission to follow your dreams. And I kept waiting. I was like, what am I waiting for? Mm-hmm. And I just did it. We get into this and so much more in episode seven of the Creative Masters podcast with the one and only Simonilla. So sit back, enjoy, and be inspired. everybody this is reggie aka nobody famous you're listening to the creative masters podcast this week we got a very very dope guest my friend simon illa simon how you doing i'm good man how are you doing i'm doing good man thanks for coming on to the podcast i definitely appreciate that um so you know i got a lot of questions i want to ask you and everything like that but first why don't you um you know give the listeners a little bit about yourself i know i met you back around uh the end of 2009 through kyle lucas but give them you know just like a brief bio what you do and we'll go from there Ooh. brief bio okay <laughs> uh i'm a writer producer vocal arranger um i've you know worked in almost every genre you can imagine 
uh, except for classical. Um, you know, I've been doing it for over, dang, like, you know, 13 years, 14 mm-hmm. years professionally. Maybe a few more, actually. Uh, I, I don't know when you would count that you become a professional. Maybe when you get a check for it. Yeah, I don't that's know. what I was going to say. Oh. When, you first, when you get that well, first check, I guess. If that's the case, then it's probably like 16, 17 years. Okay. So, yeah, been doing it for a minute. Um, I don't really know what else to say. That that kind of covers the gamut. Uh, you know, I mean, like you said, you know, we met through Kyle Lucas. Um, I, it's funny that my career and most people uh, know of me or look me up, it's like most of my career was built on hip-hop um, in the beginning, and then I kind of branched out to work, you know, pretty much on anything that I could. Definitely. And why don't you uh, give us, the listeners, just a few people that you work with. You know, name, I saw you had a post not too long ago with some name drops. So what do you name drop for us so people know what you've done? Oh, dang. Okay. <laughs> um, well, uh, some of my favorite stuff was, like, I did some stuff with, like, Manchester Orchestra. I uh, did some remixes for, like, The Millionaires. Of course, Kyle Lucas Vonnegut. Um, did a remix with uh, Janelle Monae. Um, uh, so, uh, D Woods. Of course, we mentioned Kyle Lucas, uh, but then there's, you know, Nate Curran, uh, Neil Cribbs. These are like folk artists. Charlie Hefley. Uh, I have a country singer that I'm developing now. So the list goes on and on. I, you know, there's a lot of indie artists that I worked with. You know how the game is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't even like calling it a game, but just the industry. Um, you know, I've I just worked with so many artists whether they're on the verge or or already established it's just so much talent out there it's a it's it's a good time to be a producer yeah definitely so um you know basically this podcast is just about creatives how they turn their passion um into the career into their career and you know what they went through their past and you know how they turn adversity into something positive and to <laughs> what they want to do you know so i was actually digging and doing a bunch of research on you because i've never actually just like googled you and just read everything that i found before because you know we just talk when we talk and see each other and things like that right so i ran across this article um from 08 i think it was philly mag so i learned like a lot of stuff about you that i didn't know yeah. so um you know just it kind of explains your work ethic to me as well as just like your, your personality and your friendliness and, and things like that. So, um, can you give us just like a little bit of the backstory with, you know, your upbringing and your bone disease and things like that? Uh, yeah, well, it, it's funny. Um, I always bring this up cause when I do an interview or when people see me, um, I, I actually like the interviews even more cause people are like, all right, this guy has an interesting voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes I got to explain, okay, look, I'm a three foot, one inch tall guy in a wheelchair. I have a, a condition called osteogenesis imperfecta, uh, OI for short. It's also called brittle bone disease. Um, basically, it's a, a lack of collagen in the bone. I've had it since birth. Um, so growing up, you know, I broke a lot of bones, dozens of bones. Um, and, you know, that that actually... It taught me a lot about persistence and patience. And it's funny that you say adversity because I'm actually giving a lecture uh, at a college in the fall about adversity. And it's so funny because a lot of interviews, and maybe even in the one you read, 
And what I love about the press is, you know, what, what people think when they see me is not what or who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I love nothing more than people to hear my records first Mm -hmm. and then meet me and go, Oh dang. Okay. You know what I mean? Cause I I get the impact, but to me it doesn't matter. Cause like, okay, well this is an afterthought. This doesn't have anything to do with what I create Mm -hmm. or who I, it's like, you know, my brother, he also has OI and he's a brilliant artist. Like he's genius level. Like I wish I could do, with music, what he does with art, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, so it, it just goes to show that, um, you got to work with what you're given. I've never really seen my situation as a disadvantage. Um, you know, but also I'm smart enough to know that it draws intrigue, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So when, you know, magazines would do, um, I remember like the first big article, that I got in Philadelphia, I think it was Philadelphia Daily News. Um, I talked to this guy uh, at the at the newspaper, and he's like, "Well, you know, I'm trying to drum up press for myself because I just moved out there." Mm-hmm. So he's like, "Well, what is it you do? You know, I know you're a producer and you just moved out here." So I told him my life. I told him my story, and he told me he had 15 minutes. We ended up on the phone for an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And he said, when can I come and meet you? You know what I mean? So I was like, I I want to, it, it's a weird thing because I feel like, you know, through my music, um, I think there's something bigger that people learn from me mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, I'm just doing what I do, uh, but it's become such a byproduct of, of, of my music is like, oh, okay, so not only does he do the work, here's a guy that, you look at him and you'd be like, okay, well, I may not have expected that from this guy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, just, for sure. Just seeing him. So um, I don't know if that answered your question. I feel like I went way out tangent. No, but, no, uh, it's, it's fine. You touched on some things that um, that I definitely want to touch on here in a little bit. But uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing when I, when I look at my music and the name Nobody Famous. You know, it's always just like, listen to the music first. Like, I don't, you don't have to know who I am or anything like mm-hmm. that. Just, you know, I want you to listen to the art. So... But before we kind of get into some of those other things, let's kind of backtrack a little bit. So um, you're from Paris, Illinois. What what was Paris like growing up? Man. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, don't get me wrong. I, there's some real benefits to growing up in a small town. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not have a Taco Bell. We did not have a Burger King. I don't know why I'm bringing up fast food. I'm not, <laughs> I could be hungry. Maybe, but, maybe. Maybe so. But um, I'm just saying it was such, you know, it was like, you know, that there was a town square. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it was very small town. I think maybe 9,000 people. Um, and everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew everybody's business. Um, you know, uh, it was just like a very simple um, place to grow up. I mean, and I mean that in a good way. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, life wasn't that complicated, um, you know, and a lot of things were uh, very predictable. And uh, I think there was like a movie about, uh, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's like a, it's like a suburb. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I grew up in a suburb and it was cool, but it was kind of shut off from the world. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and that was cool. But I think the older I got and, you know, um, to, to delve into my my personal life, you know, I had been through some things and my mother was, was killed when I was, uh, 
three years old and I went to live with my grandparents and just through a lot of circumstances, you know, I, I grew up with the, the idea that I'm not going to stay in this town forever. Mm-hmm. There's a world out there. You know, there, there's way bigger things and I'm not going to narrow my focus on the world to this small town, you know, and, mm-hmm. and music became my my platform to make that happen. Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask you next. Like, did you find that you can kind of like lose yourself in music and it kind of just kind of open your eyes and ears to the world and the possibility that was out there? Well, I think it did. Um, and this is something you, you may have wanted to dive into at some point on this. But, you know, it, it became I didn't really discover that I was kind of well, I don't even think I was good then, but I had something um, for music when I was like 12. Mm-hmm. But it took me that long to figure out because I spent my childhood trying to be like my brother because mm-hmm. he was such a talented artist from the time he was like three years old. You know how uh, sibling competition is. And was he like five years older than you? He is, yeah. And so I was always trying to be like him because people didn't know who I was. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like, they... they they're like, are you the artist? I'm like, no, I'm the other one. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I didn't really have anything I was good at. Um, but then when I got to be like 12 or 13, you know, I was like, I want to dig into music. And that's like when I got my first guitar mm-hmm. and um, really started seeing it as something. Um, yeah, it was. It, it kind of was my escape. It was like, you know, this is, I think I could, I could get good at this. Mm-hmm. You know, if I just apply myself it doesn't hurt that it runs in my family you know my dad and all of his siblings were in a band and you know i kind of grew up around it's kind of in our blood you know yeah and what when you got that first guitar was there like any i guess formative albums or anything that kind of you know you that influenced you and and the path for music or was it just more of just like hey i just had a guitar i kind of i kind of like this and i'm gonna see what i can, can do with it well, here, here's some irony about my career and the path it started on was, I, you know, I listened to everything growing up, mm-hmm. um, everything, um, all my family, every, depending on who I was hanging out with, I would be listening to different music, mm-hmm. you know, but in the Midwest, there was a lot of metal mm-hmm. kids, you know, Midwest kids in the, in the early nineties, it was all metal. Um, and I started getting obsessed with Metallica, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, my dad bought me this documentary called A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica. And they were ahead of the curve of everyone. I mean, decades. They mm-hmm. did a documentary of them making their album. Basically what we call reality TV. Oh, yeah. Today. Totally, yeah. And my dad bought me this. And I became obsessed with this. Like, I watched it. I wore that thing out. Yes, it was VHS tapes. Because mm-hmm. we're talking about early 90s. I wore, I wore those things out, and what I noticed was I was paying attention to this man named Bob Rock, who was their producer, and I knew that even though I was learning to play guitar, I didn't have a lot of patience for it. But I was like, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to be in charge of creating these sounds, and I was, I've always been a people person. You know, I, I, like, this is me. Like, I would tell, we, we joke about it now, uh, my best friends and I, but I think when I was about 14 or 15, they would watch these things with me and I would tell them, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. Like when I get older, that's going to be my gig. 
And, I mean, it took a while to actually, uh, you know, kind of look around myself and be like, oh, whoa, I've done it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's what it was. It was just not just my passion and my love of music. Like, my life has has been music. You know, I, I, I'm not just a casual listener, as I'm sure you're not. Most creatives are not. It's mm-hmm. like I can think of periods in my life like, oh, this period, this is what I was listening to. Yep. And when I listen to this, this is high school. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, a summer afternoon when I was 22. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like. It's, it's like a soundtrack. Yeah, and, and those memories, it's like it's like tied to memory. So it's like you can always right. close your eyes and feel exactly where you're at when you like hear certain songs from, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's, it's mm-hmm. crazy, you know? Exactly. Um, so as you, you started watching these documentaries, you're 13, 14, 15, you're like, this is what I want to do, right? So for mm-hmm. the next few years throughout high school, like, what were you doing with music at that time? Um, I, I put, all, well, most of my money... Um, into, you know, I had a job from the time I was like 14. Mm-hmm. You can legally get a job in Illinois at 14. So I told my grandmother, she knew how, you know, passionate I was. I mean, she bought me my first guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, you know, I took all my job money and was like, oh, let's, let's buy a four track. All right. Let's, let's buy this. Let's buy that. Um, my dad bought me a drum machine. Um, I tell that story in uh, the autobiography that I just wrote that it, mm-hmm. that's about to come out. So, you know, I started accumulating this gear and just working on it. And that's all we did in high school. It's funny because I heard in your previous podcast, you talked about weekends, you know, and, and, and after school and stuff. Mm-hmm. As you were like, that's that was us in high school, me and my two best friends. We We would sit in my room and make. I mean, at the time, it was stupid music, mm-hmm. but you know, I mean, it wasn't yeah, yeah. to us then. But we were just—that's all we did—is like we're recording. I mean, we we made basically the equivalent of like an alternative rock mixtape in high school and sold a hundred copies at school, nice, which not is bad. probably a, probably illegal. Uh, I mean, nowadays everything is illegal, but uh, you know, it, it, that's what we did. That's all we did. It wasn't—I had no social life, which I was okay with. So, like, this is what I love doing. I'm going to do it. Yeah, and I, I found that um, a lot of creatives, like, when they do decide what they want to do or even when they're kind of hovering around what they want to do and not exactly sure yet that they do put a lot of time into it, you know, throughout those high school, even middle school years. Because for me, I was always, like, in the computers. My dad had me around computers and stuff like that. So my friends mm-hmm. at the time, they're like, why are you always on the computer? And, you know, it's like 94, 95. And at the time, yeah. it wasn't popular to be like on the computer. It's like, it's right. like the future. Like, this is what's going to be next. And, you know, yep. 20 years later, it's like we basically got computers in our hand and everything like that, like at all times. So, right. and, and nobody can put them down. So, you know, and even that love for computers led me to making videos and then eventually music. So even back then, I was still kind of hovering around. And I even think back you can download literally like, you know, wave files are obviously bigger than MP3s for yes. people out there who aren't, you know, up on audio and things like that. And you used to be able to download like three second clips of like songs on American online, American online. Yeah. And I would just like try to like splice them together and stuff just like, you know, <laughs> so I was always kind yeah. of messing with it and things like that. But so you, you graduated high school and let's talk about Indiana state a bit. Cause I kind of have a connection to that. Um, uh, my mom went to school there back in the Larry bird days actually. Oh wow. Cool. And then, um, in 94, I spent like half a summer there with family cause she had went back to finish like two semesters or a semester of school. What? So wait, what that, yo, that's, 
<laughs> Wait a minute. That's the year I started. So it would have been right before I went there. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, it was like that summer of OJ and everything like that. And I just yep. remember um, my cousins lived out there and we would ride the bike. I forget which, it might have been a, was it a Food Line or Piggly Wiggly y'all had there? Something like that. I don't something, know. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like you would ride to like over there, they give you like a free cookie on Tuesdays or something, and then go to the Boys and Girls Club and just like play basketball and stuff. All yep, that. yep, so, yep. Yeah, Small so, world. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about um, your college experience. Um, well, that was interesting. Um, I actually went to, I wanted to be a music major. Um, you know, that was where my heart was, and I went to the orientation for the music program and quickly they figured out they're like you you don't read music do you mm-hmm. and i said no i cannot you know i said i never had to i play by ear and they're like well you're gonna have a really hard time in this program because all of our students have been reading music for you know at least four or five years mm-hmm. so they're you know you're you are gonna get lost um and, and me being who i was back then i wasn't I mean, I've changed a lot over the years, but, you know, back then I was, I don't want to say I was easily defeated, mm-hmm. but I was more like, oh, okay, you know, like maybe, you know, that would be tough and I, you know, I don't want to cause problems, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and so I just uh, started college as an open preference student, not knowing what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but I knew I would just take every music class that I could. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I took, you know, classical i took uh jazz blues and rock um i did take a theory class and dropped it after three weeks because we took an exam and although the teacher through some after class assistance helped me discover that i have relative perfect pitch mm-hmm. he's like you have some skills and the ironic thing was i was making records at this time i, I turned my dorm room into a studio like i used my student loans i had you know, thousands of dollars of gear in my in in my dorm room. Such a such um, a familiar story for us music producers. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, my thing was is that uh, I just had oh my gosh, it was. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how much gear that I had accumulated um, over those years, just because my tuition was paid for. Mm-hmm. So once again, I used that to my advantage when I found out. I could get student loans, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Wait, my school's paid for, but I can get money." <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, I don't even want to tell tell you what I borrowed over those four and a half years, but it was enough that I had a nice little studio in the dorm room, started making records, and it was around that time that I decided that I would declare a major, and I ended up studying geography and uh, meteorology. Mm-hmm. And I ended up being like the head of the department of under the underclass uh, department of meteorology. And my advisor, ironically, he was a really young guy getting a PhD. Um, but strangely, he studied music as a minor in college. So he and I were just really simpatico, as they say, because he knew what I really wanted to do, mm-hmm. you know. I was like, not to be, well, this is going to sound arrogant. I did really good in school, meaning, you know, I I liked what I studied and I did well. But at the same time, everyone around me knew this guy's going to be a record producer. You know, like I was in the school newspaper four or five times for 
producing you know like mm-hmm. I, I was I joined a band um, that was kind of like a public enemy rage against the machine you know live band hip-hop with a message kind of thing you know we started a label and we did all these things and that that just became my circle it was like it was like high school but on a bigger scale mm-hmm. where I was like I was getting known on campus you know, they're like, oh, that's, you know, it's a guy, that's that producer um, who went by the name Brad G at the time. Because my real name being Brad Gilbert. Yeah, yeah. It's the Warren G days, you know. Yeah, regulators I, and all that. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, I had guys, that, uh, they nicknamed me Baby Dre uh, because I was making these crazy hip-hop beats. And, you know, people were like, man, these people wouldn't expect it from you. You're like a little Dre you know, you're running things on campus, like, and it was crazy, I got my first taste of, like, yeah, this is, now I gotta take this to an even bigger level, mm-hmm. you know, campus was good, but it's gotta go, you know, once people started coming down from, like, um, GI and EC, if you're from the Midwest, you know what that means, Gary, Indiana, small mom, family, and, yep. and East Chicago, mm-hmm. people were coming from St. Louis, um, Louisville, they were coming to Indiana State to work with me and I was like I, I didn't grasp it then you know what I mean but I was just like yo these people are coming in to work with me you know and, and but I still had time to do you know my homework and stuff mm-hmm. uh, barely but you know yeah I, 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 I did my thing and um, was actually uh, able to graduate in uh, like less than five years oh that's, that's not bad then it took, <laughs> yeah it took me five years to Okay. <laughs> well, mine, mine was four and a half with like two or three summer sessions. Mm-hmm. So it, it could have been five easy. Yeah. Yeah. I never, I never did the summer sessions at all. Mm-hmm. But uh, just for like the music producers out there who are listening, because if you said you said you started in 94? Uh, yeah. Well, any other state. Oh, in Indiana state. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, so sir. what, uh, compared to these days, like what, what was the equipment like that you were using at that time? Oh man, I'm about to take you back. <laughs> um, back then it was rack gear. You know, you had a MIDI controller, but you had the rack gear. You had the, you know, the Proteus and the Planet Fat. Yes, you know, like was. all these like Roland racks and you know Yamaha racks, the Motif, the Phantom. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I didn't get a Phantom until I moved to Philly, which is a whole other story. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I had this racks of gear and and i totally admit that you know i had these outboard gear as they call it Mm -hmm. um of like compressors and subharmonic generators and you know all these things and some of them i admit i didn't know what the hell they did i was (laughs) like yo it's got a lot of lights it looks cool and i've seen this in a lot of studios i'm gonna get this yeah yeah. of course i couldn't afford the real gear not the stuff that i use now Mm -hmm. um but you know, I had this nice collection and racks of, and oh, that included. Um, I jumped right in, right in the early. I'm gonna take you back again. VS 1680, which was a hard disk recorder. Mm. So it was like the, one of the first digital recorders, not in a computer, but it was like it was a hard disk. You would use like zip disks. I remember those. Yep. Mm-hmm. So we had those and. You had to lay everything out, like track the beats out. You had to consolidate track because you're only working with 16. Um, and then things moved to like Opcode Studio Pro 
and then uh, eventually um, moved into Pro Tools, mm-hmm. like late nineties. Okay. Yeah. And then um, you said like throughout college, like everybody knew that you're gonna be like a music producer and things like that. Was there ever a time that you were like, I don't want to be in school. Like I'm just gonna quit and focus on this music. Yeah, there there were, and in fact, I almost got kicked out of school at one point because mm-hmm. I didn't like to go to class. Um, but you you know what you know what's weird is is that my biggest fear was going back to my hometown. Mm-hmm. And I knew if I dropped out, first of all, first of all, when I get a goal in my head, I got to see it through. Mm -hmm. So me starting college, like this was important to me. But, you know, a guy like a guy in my situation, there was a lot more at stake. Mm -hmm. Um, I was living pretty much on my own. You know, I had a personal assistant every day at that time. Um, You know, but to me, it was so good to be out of the house, to be independent. Mm -hmm. That was my world because I grew up, you know, not with everyone, but there were a lot of naysayers. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of people, you're always going to need help. Mm -hmm. You can never live on your own. You're going to live at home for the rest of your life. And that just, uh, uh, I mean, it infuriated me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I was like, no, and I fought that. So I was like, okay, the sacrifice is I'm going to have to stay in school. I'm going to have to see this through. It's just part of it. Mm-hmm. And, it, and the ironic thing was, if I didn't stay in school, I couldn't produce. Mm-hmm. What was I going to do? Like, I was, the, I was that guy. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if I left the school, I mean, then I had to get an apartment off campus. And then what am I going to, you know, I, at the time, it just, it worked. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, I just got to juggle this. Let me juggle it until I graduate. I'll be proud of myself. I'll let my family down easily mm-hmm. by telling them, you know, that degree that I got, um, is pointless. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but it was more of a personal achievement and that's, that's kind of why I did it. It was more of a personal goal and I'm proud of it. I mean, I have it on my wall today, yeah, you know, sure. because it, it's a personal achievement. And, and once again, I wouldn't be talking to you today if I hadn't stayed in school and, it, you know, cause, cause once I got out of school, I, we started a label, you know, I was producing, you know, I was working day in, day out for a good, I think maybe a year, year and a half mm-hmm. at an indie label, just working my chops. Like, so that's like five years into it, still busting my ass. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Um, let me touch on a couple of things on that. I guess the first thing is like for people who are listening, like creatives and stuff, like a college campus can really be a gold mine for like the connections that you can make. Because it's like so many, at least I found, you know, there's so many people mm-hmm. in a small concentrated area that are probably at least half of them are probably into something that you like as well. So if you're making music and things like that, like you said, you were the man. So, you know, it's not always a bad thing to be on a college campus, even if you might not necessarily be majoring in something at the moment that you like. But also, you know, you said there's like a lot of naysayers, um, you know, your whole life. And, you know, you had the goal to finish college and everything like that was... Cause I can I can I can't you know speak for you but I can speak for myself like for college for me there's a lot of times I wanted to quit mm-hmm. but it was kind of like for me I was just like I'm gonna finish this so my parents like leave me alone so I can do what I want to do <laughs> yeah <laughs> so was that was that any part of your motivation as well besides you know your personal motivation of starting something and finish it but was it also just to prove that like you can do it 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 was it was and it was like you know it was so many things 
wrapped up into one one like time period of my life Mm -hmm. you know it was like my independence you know i wanted to get away i mean i love my family but you know there was a lot of um dysfunction there um i love my grandma dearly um and i wanted to make her proud you know i want to make myself proud you know Mm -hmm. i was like i i work really hard like i said i just became this goal-oriented kid from probably the time i was like 13 or 14 when I got my first job, I was just like, I'm going to do this. Watch me do it. Mm-hmm. That, that was my thing. It was just like, watch me do it. And, and, and that's how it all came out of me, you know. And and I, I keep referring back to my book. But this is one thing I think I, I even let people read in the preview of my book was there was one event. And this is going to get sappy. So I hope your listeners like this. Uh, <laughs> okay, go ahead. But like, like I said, there was a lot of dysfunction in my family. But I remember the day I graduated that some of my family that never gets together, they never get together. They got together and all went out to dinner um, because of my graduation. Mm -hmm. And everybody sat at the table at this restaurant. They talked and they laughed. And, you know, I looked around and was like, like, as sappy as it is, I'm like, okay, if I did it just for this, I'm cool with that. Mm Mm-hmm. Because everybody got along that day. I know it sounds weird. Well, it may not sound weird. But, you know, it wasn't just for that. But that was one of the things where I was like, dang, people were proud. Mm -hmm. I was proud. But that aside, I don't even really care about that. It was seeing them together. It was like, dang, if it takes this. I mean, I can't keep going back to college. Yeah, yeah. You know, Um, but it, it was, you know, in that moment, like everything was like, oh, this is all worth it. Everything is worth that, you know, the the sacrifice. For sure. Yeah. Definitely. And, you know, you always have those memories um, forever. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely understand that. So you graduated your um, you said you produced it for about a year and a half after in the area and things like that. And then you decided you wanted to go to Philly. So I, I read in that article, you know, your mom or your grandmother was like, you know, be sensible. You can't do this. And you kind of already touched on like when somebody tells you that you can't do something and things like that. So you ended up buying a one way ticket to Philly. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to, I guess, kind of like maybe coin a, a new phrase on, on the podcast. We'll call it like the one way ticket syndrome or something like that. But mm-hmm. I remember um, back in 2007, I graduated school and I was like, it was probably like six months out. And I was like, you know what, I'm gonna move to LA. And I didn't really tell my parents too early because I knew they would have been like, why, what are you doing? And things like that. Yeah. And they actually found out from somebody else probably like three weeks before I moved and I already had already bought my one way ticket and I was like out, you know? So what made you just be like, you know what, I'm just going to buy this one-way ticket and just go? I know you were, like, visiting Philly here and there, but what made you be like, yeah, I'm just going to go and see what happens? Well, I mean, the, well, I will say this in more detail. I had no choice with the one-way. That's all I could afford because mm-hmm. I had an Amtrak voucher. This was before my jet-setting days. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, you, know what it, you know what it was is – Dang, this is gonna be the sappiest podcast you ever had. Um, Let's get I, into it. <laughs> I, had, I had to move. I had to move back home after I worked with the label for a year and a half. I had no choice. Mm-hmm. I lived with an old college roommate while he was in grad school. You know, he was nice enough to let me live with him because I just because I didn't want to go home. Mm-hmm. You know, I said I can't. I can't. And I ended up having to go home. And I lived in this not so ideal house um with a family member and like i had there was like 
you know, it was middle of winter in the Midwest, which is brutal. Mm-hmm. There was a hole in my wall uh, to where I would wake up at night and my face would be numb, you know. Mm-hmm. And I would sit in this room and I also I got away with um, from my record label days was, you know, um, some of my rack, my synth racks and my computer. Mm-hmm. So I was making beats and hustling. I actually got a placement uh, with a, an artist from like uh, Nashville. I think this guy named Mac Nasty, which always makes me laugh because he has like the, the stereotypical like no limit CD looking cover, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like that late I, 90s. Just. Yeah, yeah, where it's like the big picture and then the name, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like very, like, Photoshop. And some diamonds and, yeah. and maybe yeah. a pit bull or something. That's exactly, yeah, you've seen it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so um, but I got a placement, but, you know, like, every night I sat in that room and was a failure. Like, I felt like I was a failure. I was like, I'm back home. Mm-hmm. I'm back home. I was just the man at, you know on the college campus doing all these things. And I even told when I left the record label, you know, that I was working with, I told them, I said, no disrespect, but I want to do this for the rest of my life. And if, it, 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 if you want it to, I'll see you again. If you don't, I won't. Mm-hmm. And that's how, cause I was producing, uh, I, I had produced 23 records by the time I moved back home, which was in 2000, mm-hmm. 23 albums, nothing to show for it. You know, I was broke. And, and I, you know, I had some connections in Philly. I had this, I think I was only back home for like three months. It's all I could stand. Mm-hmm. And I got, I found that I could get to Philly with this train ticket. And I was like, this is it. Cause I didn't care. I did not care anymore. Like I was really that low where I was like, I don't care what happens to me. I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm not encouraging people to go do dumb stuff, mm-hmm. you know, because even someone in my, not even in my position physically, you know, because people are like, wait, what did you do? Because I remember when I went to Philly and was getting meetings at record labels, they're like, wait, what did you do? You just left home? You don't have a place to live? I'm like, yeah. They're like, man, that, that takes some guts, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, you know, and I'm scared as hell every day, but what am I going to do? I don't know what else to do with myself. This is what I had. You know, so it just became that it was I literally got down to no choice. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't want to choose. I was like, I don't, it, 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 it's almost like it chose me. That sounds really weird. But, you know, what I mean, I was like, I, this is what I have to do. Mm-hmm. I was compelled. So like when you when you went to Philly and you're out there and you like ran out of money and, um, you know, you were staying in hotels. And I even read that you like stayed in a train station sometimes. Like what was <laughs> going through your mind in those moments? Uh, you know, I don't think anything was, because if there was, I'd be smarter. Um, now that I'm older, mm-hmm. of course you get older, you think, oh, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But what, what I found early on was honesty always wins. Mm-hmm. When I was honest with people, when I was in a train, like, I would sleep in the Philly train station um, when I didn't have a place to stay, because I would just talk to the security there. Mm-hmm. I would tell them the truth. I'm a record producer. I'm I'm looking for work. I'm not a bum. I'm not going to ask for money. I'm not going to, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you just keep an eye out for me so nobody robs me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and please, and if you need me to leave, I will. I'm not going to put up a fight. But I just found that when I was honest with people, and said, look, this is what I'm really trying to do. Just things worked out. There's a lot of things 
in my career I can't explain. That is one of them. I mean, I've had I had some brushes with some interesting people and then seen some things in some public bathrooms at four in the morning that I don't wish upon anyone. <laughs> um, and coming from a small town, yeah. you know what I mean? You go to a big city, you're like, whoa, okay, you learn quick. You know what I mean? And and I just threw my – it's that whole thing of people like there's no preparing. It's just – Go freaking do it. And just like you said, I couldn't tell my grandparents what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I had to, because, you know, they would have had a heart attack, multiple heart attacks. I was just like, they had to, I just had to trust me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, actually, a lot of things could happen. But I just looked past all that. And it was, even to this day, it's very strange mm-hmm. that a lot of the things I can't really explain, especially growing up with a, I hate the word disability, but in the physical circumstance that I have, mm-hmm. people are like, wait, you never broke a bone? It's like, yeah, no. Like, when I moved out, like, you know, all these, I just never got hurt. And, like, it, it's kind of miraculous in a strange, you know, mystical way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me. Let me ask yeah. you, because you said you um, you basically looked past, you know, your current circumstances because, you know, you're focused on your goals and what you wanted to do. And I, mm-hmm. even, I even think back like there was times in L.A. when like, you know, I would work. Now, when I look back, I'm like maybe I should have just got a full time job and then just stayed up later or something. But I would work mm-hmm. like part time jobs and rent was so expensive that I didn't really have much extra money. So sometimes I'd like be so hungry. I would just like sleep half the day. And wake, mm-hmm. and wake up and eat McDonald's and then, you know, work until I got hungry again and then just go back to sleep for the night. So right. it's like, what do what? you think it is yeah. in people that in creatives who like get to the next level that where they have just kind of like that stubborn, like faith and belief that they're going to make it like, did you, did you obviously, did you think that you had that or did you notice that at the time? Yeah, I did. I mean, I had. I had the utmost faith in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that's the only thing that led me to to leap that far. You know, it was like sometimes I did stuff and was like, "Whoa, I did that!" Because if I thought about it too much, I wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I just had to had to leap and, and, and do it. And you know, one one thing you brought up because you talked about you know having a part time job and, and and even going back to your adversity thing. Um, you know, when I was at, at this time, I was like. 22, 23, and I moved to Philly, and, and I ended up finding a, a, an apartment in a hotel where I stayed a lot. It was basically an extended stay hotel. I ended up living there for seven years. Mm-hmm. But the ironic thing was not ironic, but the, the thing was that my father had passed some years before that. He committed suicide, and I was getting disability checks from the government. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it was just enough money to cover my rent in this place in Philly. And to me, it was a sign. Well, I don't care what people believe, whatever. To me, it was like, I have to do this. Mm-hmm. That's what this money is for. This is like my dad, in a way, looking at me going, man, you better do this. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, you'll figure out the rest. You'll figure out, you know, and, and that's what I did. It was just like, it was there and I, I jumped on it and that just made everything else possible. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the book, the alchemist, like with the omen. So it's like, there's always just like one little clue for like your next step. And then if you listen to it and take that next step, the next clue, you know, will reveal itself and you just keep following those clues. And before you know it, you know, you look back and like, wow, like I did that, 
you know, I, I, I went through all that and survived, and I'm here. Ironically, I want to read that book. I've read a lot of, well, not a lot. I've read my share of books. That's one I have yet to read. And the fact that you just said it just told me that I need to go get that. Uh, that's your like omen. ASAP. Right yeah, exactly. It's a it's a pretty quick read and it's a great book. I, I need to read it again. Actually, it's probably like one of those books you need to read like every year, like on New Year's. It's like Day the four the four agreements. Yeah, all of that kind of stuff in the yes. same line. Yep. Yep. So, um, you're in Philly. You're living in this apartment, extended stay. Um, you know, you're getting the checks to pay for it, and you're working now. So, you start making connections. Tell us about like those connections that really kind of started to take your career to the next level. Um, well, a couple of the biggest ones. I started working with a singer songwriter. This is when I start branching out genre-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy named Skip Denenberg, who, you know, singer-songwriter from Philly, um, just a, a cool cat, great singer, and, and an older guy, you know, mm-hmm. probably, I mean, maybe 10 years older than me. Um, but I just liked his personality and his his spirit, and he had some great songs. And he, the first day I hung out with him, he played me a song. I ended up producing a ton of stuff for him. Uh, with him for like Major League Baseball, the NFL, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But he told me some advice that I tell people now. He said, say yes to everything. Because I asked him his advice. I said, I'm new to Philly. What do you think? He said, say yes to everything. If somebody wants you to vocal arrange something, say yes. Mm -hmm. If they want you to mix something, say yes. If they want you, whatever it is, if if you even kind of think you can do it, say yes. Mm -hmm. Because one of those things is going to branch off and it's just going to be a huge thing. And then he also said, get over your fear of flying because one day somebody's going to offer you a big check mm-hmm. to put you on an airplane to fly you to make records. And I said, oh, you're full of it. And then six months later, it happened, you know. So uh, he was one of the first. Um, so I started doing, you know, getting some placements here and there. I did, uh, I negotiated a deal for, I did a soundtrack to American Rap Stars which is a documentary from the early 2000s with like Snoop Dogg and Jay-Z and tons of people on it. I negotiated the deal myself. Um, I didn't get much money and they used more beats than they said they would, but they put my name in the credits uh, as I requested in my contract Mm -hmm. because it ended up getting like played on Showtime or HBO or something. I ended up getting a ton of work out of it. you know, and then uh, around 2006, which is right around when you, that article you read, mm-hmm. I was kind of at the top of my game in Philly. I had people flying out. I had a, uh, one client, a pop singer, flying out from L.A. once a week to work with me, you know, um, raking money in. Like, I, it's weird that I had no major placements uh, because of the money I was making and the name that I had. Um I produced a kid named Knox, uh, who's a rapper from Philly, whose best friend is Scott Storch. And at that time, Scott Storch had just done, uh, you know, Lean Back, mm-hmm. you know, and all this stuff. Uh, I ended up, Scott ended up hearing my work, was like, hey, man, you should come to Miami. So needless to say, I hopped on a plane, you know, and I went to Miami, and he's like, check this song out. This is uh, Make It Rain. And I'm like, holy crap, you know, like, and then he's like, hey, Simon, he, by the way, here's, here's Trey songs. Here's Nelly Furtado. He's introducing me to like, you know, I was in a room once and like Diddy was behind me and Lil Wayne was next to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, what is good? I'm in my late twenties going here. Here we go. Yeah, here yeah. We, um, the cool thing was, is 
that piqued the interest of Timberland. Uh, Timberland's uh, one of his team members ended up signing me on my 30th birthday. Um, so, and there I was, I was like, I've arrived, you know, mm-hmm. I'm at Timberland's house on my birthday in Miami. His chef is cooking me dinner. You know, I'm with my manager. I'm with my assistant, with one of my best friends. You know, I'm like, this is my life. This is it. This is it. Um, and, uh, he, you may have read in the, I don't even know actually if it was in the article. Um, that person that signed me, um, ended up getting very ill and, and, and had cancer. Um, he was kind of my end to the team. Mm-hmm. So things really didn't flow the way he intended. Yeah, yeah. Let me note here, because his name is Bill, and I love Bill. And Bill's doing, he recovered. Mm-hmm. He's doing a lot better. So, Good to hear. Bill, I hope you're listening to this. I love you, man. Because what, what that did for me, I was so hype and so depressed all at the same time. Because I was like, I'm signed to a man who had just produced, uh, you know, Justin Timberlake, Sexy Back, mm-hmm. who's at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm with the biggest producer in the world, and I can't get any work with him. Um, and it took one of my best friends, uh, you know, to snap me out of it. And he said, well, he said, you've worked for a really long time. He said something very profound to me. He said, do you want to work for Timbaland, or do you want to be Timbaland? Mm-hmm. And, and what, I was like, what'd you say? I said, I want to be Simon freaking Illa. You know? There you go. That's the right answer right there. Yeah. You know, and, and, and no disrespect to Tim, because Tim is like mm-hmm. one of my heroes, you know, but I had branched out and done so many different types of music, you know, and, 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 and no disrespect to these producers. And I'm going to bust a lot of producers bubbles right here. And I'm not even calling out names. This happens with all of them. There are a lot of people that work under other people that never get their due. Mm-hmm. They never get their name put out there like it should. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of producers out there that should really be known just on the same level as their idols. You know what I mean? Definitely. Um, but it just became a thing that kind of disheartened me. And I was like, you know, I don't really care. Like, I, I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to, I don't want to be a guy that's working under someone. Oh, that's, oh, that's one of so-and-so's guys. No. Mm-hmm. I want to like I had worked. I mean, I was 30, 30 years old. It's like I've done too much. Mm-hmm. I've done too much to slap someone else's name on my work. Definitely. And I didn't want to do that. And that's kind of that's kind of where that that kind of started and ended pretty quick. But you know what? I'm going to say this. It, I learned a lot being in that environment. Good and bad. Yeah, yeah. for sure. What and not to do and what to do. And that's the thing. You definitely got to learn from, you know, any opportunity that you get. But you said a couple of things that that really stuck out to me. And you said, for one, um, to say yes to everything, you know, and I definitely get that, especially like when you're young and you're getting started and coming up because you want to have your name everywhere, basically. Right. But say Mm -hmm. now at this point in your career, I don't think that you would say yes to everything. You know, I think no, no is more powerful because you have a you have, you know, you're established and your time is more valuable i would think right. so do you act do you say no to things these days yeah yeah i do um and and, and a lot of times you know what was really fascinating to me though is a lot of those things i would say no to aren't even coming around mm-hmm. meaning a lot of what's coming my way i'm like yeah 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 you know what i mean it's like wow you know what i mean like 
yes, I'll work on this. Yeah, I'll work. You know, but but there, yeah, there have been things, and but I've also learned a lot about the the way people communicate with you. Mm-hmm. You learn to read it. Yeah. You learn to like you know. There's and there's there's still people I help out with mixtape stuff because mm-hmm. they can't always afford it. And if I got downtime, you know, and someone's like, hey, like, could you mix this? And you know. And, you know, and I'll work out something. I don't do it for free. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'll be like, yeah, let's work out something. You know, and, and, and like you, one thing, and this is a thing to all producers, if you do say yes, your work has to be the same for that indie kid that you're working with or girl or, you know, singer, songwriter. That's got to be the same level work that you do for this person that's going to get, you know what I mean? Look at the work I've done with Kyle Lucas, you know, quarter million uh, downloads of his mixtapes over the years. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, you, I want to do the same work that I do for an unsigned kid or a kid that doesn't have much of a fan base. If I agree to take the work, mm-hmm. I got to do the same kind of work. It's not, you know, because I've seen people do that. Well, they're only paying me such as, it's like, yeah, but... Your name's on it. Yep, it's a it's a reflection mm-hmm. of you and and what you do in anything you do in everything. So, it's your business card. Your mm-hmm. that is your. So when people hear that, it's you know it, that's what I don't get with, with some of the some of the younger um, producers coming up. It's like that could be a valuable lesson. It's like do the same work you would do for anyone because they will appreciate it, and you just never know who's listening. It, that's like pride in your work. And you actually don't ever know who's going to pop either. Yeah. Because I've had people in my studio apartment in L.A. I'm not going to name any names, but we were recording stuff, and two, three years later, they just took off. So you'll never know who's going to be who. That is so true. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know what's what's crazy? And I don't know if every industry person or uh, all your listeners would know this or, you know, the average listener. But the ironic thing, and people don't know this, um, you know who Benny Blanco is, right? Mm-hmm. One of the top pop writers of today. He he used to wait for me outside the studio in Philly, and he would come over to my place and play me his beats, and they were garbage. Mm-hmm. And I told him that. <laughs> I said, yo, these are garbage, man. But you got to keep working, keep working. So, but that's why I'm saying you just, and then you start working with Dr. Luke. Mm-hmm. A couple years later, boom. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So that's like I said, you, you never know. You never know. And um, another thing you said about the whole Timberland situation, you said you were like really hype and really depressed at the same time and you had to snap out of it. So I kind of had a similar situation a few years back, like Rosanna popped and like overseas. I mean, it's like number one in some countries and like top 10 and several others and Mm -hmm. just all this crazy stuff was happening. But I was going through like a personal situation at the same time. So I was like really hyped but really like depressed at the same time so how did you like snap out of it what did you do to like you know say all right this happened i got to keep it moving um well i think it's just like remembering it's remembering why you do it you know what i mean like even even for myself like a couple years ago um you know i went through some personal things um so and it was this was another high low because i had like a very successful folk singer like touring the country and we sold a bunch of records, you know, and he was doing great. And this is like, you know, Kyle, you know, crushing it on tour, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm working with D Woods who was in Danity Kane, like doing her thing, like all these people working with me. I was like the height of all this stuff mm-hmm. and going through some personal stuff. 
you know, it can really tear you down. The ironic thing is that's where we get our passion from mm-hmm. and our artistry from, you know, and I had to like, I think it all comes down to remembering why you do it. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I get to make music for a living and not that many people, you know, can say that. And and also it's 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 when people contact you or they say, hey, I heard this record you did. And yeah, I, I listen to this every day. And you're like, really? Like that? You know, and like mm-hmm. all these things just come out of the woodwork, you know, where you're like, your work starts reflecting back to you. And you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. So it's not, you know, especially during that Timbaland era, that was right before I moved to Atlanta. So, and it, it kind of spurred my, my passion again. Yeah. You know, where I had heard Vonnegut the first time on MySpace, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And Dee Dee Murray, uh, Purple Ribbon, uh, Big Boy's label, mm-hmm. called me personally and was like, you know, we need a producer right here. You're the guy. Mm-hmm. And there it was. I was like, hell yeah, I'm the guy. You know what I mean? It reminded me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, yeah. Yeah, of course I am. What am I thinking? You know, because it, it, it's, just, it's, it's just a lot of hard work. I mean, you, you mention it all the time. We talk about it. Uh, in our own personal conversations mm-hmm. it's just like it's years it's not it's not quick it's just years of like if you get that momentum behind you the the worst thing you can do mm-hmm. is halt is just stop it you know what i mean like mm-hmm. that's when you lose um is, is by stopping the game you know yeah for sure and that's what i was going to touch on next so is that what brought you to atlanta the whole purple ribbon situation yeah, it was. Um, like I said, I, I was kind of at the height of my career uh, in Philly. Mm-hmm. Um, I got I got listed in a celebrity sighting in the paper, so that was pretty dope. Oh, nice. Uh, my best friend called me and said, "You have arrived," which made me laugh. Um, you know, and I was I was becoming friends with some you know very cool people, well-known people, and all that. And uh, I think it was yeah, I don't remember the well, it must have been 2007. Um, I had worked with Dave Tolliver, who was in the group Men at Large. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked with him in Cleveland, did a lot of work in Cleveland. And he had moved to Atlanta, and he connected with Dee Dee Murray, who was running uh, Purple Ribbon for Big Boy. Mm-hmm. And Dee Dee called me uh, at the advice of Dave, and she said, I need a producer for this kid that Big Boy just signed. Um, are you going to be in Atlanta? And I lied to her. I told her this. This is not new. But I lied to her, and I said, yeah, I'm going to be in Atlanta in a couple weeks, mm-hmm. which is a total lie. Uh, and I just found uh, my way to Atlanta, did some work at Purple Ribbon, uh, which is weird because it's right next to Zach Recording, which is my second home now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, and when I came back home, got emails from this kid named Kyle Lucas. I'm like, who the hell is this kid? His band's pretty dope. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm like, wait, they're signing to Purple Ribbon? What the hell? You know, I didn't hear anything about them. So I checked out that situation, and it was just like when I moved to Philly. Mm-hmm. I had that gut feeling again. I was like, maybe I've kind of milked Philly. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm at the top of my game. What better way to leave? <laughs> you know what I mean? Definitely, it, yeah. It's like, let me, let me leave while everybody knows me and move on to bigger and better uh, you know, or just different things, you know, like I, I need a change of pace. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I moved to, to Atlanta, I think four or five months later after I produced a record for Dee Dee 
um, um, a guy named George Tisdale, mm-hmm. uh, who's an amazing singer and performer, um, and she loved it. And that's all I needed to know. I was I talked to my best friend and roommate at the time. I was like, hey, want to go to Atlanta? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And I think he trusted my gut instinct from growing up. We'd known each other since we were six years old. Yeah. yeah. So I think he trusted my gut. He had seen it work mm-hmm. over the years. So I'm like, let's go to Atlanta. He's like, uh, okay. So that's how we ended up here. And now you're here. Yep. That's dope. So um, we talked about a lot of things here. You know, you've had a very, very um, interesting journey and you've always, you know, kept going. You kept a positive attitude about it and things like that. So I just want to ask, like, when you wake up in the morning, what is it, you know, besides your Starbucks that that drives you? (laughs) (laughs) You you know me, too. Yeah. Anybody that follows me on uh, social media, they know they know my 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 vices. Um, You know, well, you know what I what I think is, is. You know, it goes back to the personal things again. You know, I, I have a I have a nice place in Atlanta. Um, you know, I have reminders on my walls mm-hmm. of you know uh, records I've done and, and and the media coverage that I've gotten, which is all for the right reasons. Um, you know, I live by myself. I'm independent. Um, you know what I mean? And and once I started being able to do you know, seminars and things like that. And I befriended some of my heroes. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm good friends with uh, uh, Steve Lillywhite, who has produced, you know, U2 and Dave Matthews Band and the Rolling Stones and the, Kill- the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. And he and I are buddies. Like, I, to me, it's like when I'm becoming friends with people at that level and I feel that respect from them, you know, it's it's like, okay, I'm... I'm still doing it right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's kind of kind of what I look at is like, you know, even getting asked to give a lecture, you know, at a, a music school in Philadelphia, of all places, in the fall. Um, you know, it's like, man, this is this is cool. You know what I mean? Like still running, still making records, you know, and seeing people like Kyle, you know, how he's touring. I mean, you've seen the mm-hmm. progression of Kyle. He's just, he's just one of many, yeah, but you know, yeah. but, but Kyle's touring the world. You, we, you and I were working with him when he was, you know, just doing the mixtapes up in Marietta. And now he's like, you know, it's like, what? He's in Europe. He's in Australia. What? Yeah, you know right. what I mean? It's, it's yeah. And it's, but that's what it's for, you know, is like seeing that progression. And it's like, it's just a, it's a process. It's a process. It is a process. I, yeah. Not a, not a destination. Mm-hmm. And you have to enjoy the process and the journey. Right. Um, I think that's very important. And I got I got another question, um, a couple more questions, actually. But mm-hmm. this is always curious just to hear people's uh, response to this. And you kind of alluded to this earlier when, you know, someone when your friend said, do you want to work for Timbaland or do you want to be Timbaland? You're like, I want to be Simonilla. Right. So mm-hmm. at what point along the way did you have to redefine success for yourself, like of what you wanted and not based off of what someone else wanted for you musically in your life and pretty much, you know, all around? I, you know, I, I think it was, I think it was that time period mm-hmm. when I really had to face the fact of, okay, I, I think also meeting guys like I had met at that time, I was in Miami a lot. And that's, that was like the hub of, you know, pop and rap music at the time mm-hmm. in, you know, 2007, 2006. Um, and uh, I think it was back then. No, I know. I know it was. Where I was like, I think what 
I don't want to say it was a peak because it wasn't really a peak, but it was it was another plateau for me to understand and be comfortable with. It's the work I had done so far that got me to those people. Mm-hmm. I, that got me to those people. That wasn't a you know uh, Scott Storch or Timbaland or whoever coming to be like, oh, I'm going to groom this kid. You know, I was groomed. Mm-hmm. I got I reached them by doing what I had done. So it was like, okay, well, I'm on the right path. And that's when I kind of redefined that. I was like, well, I'm going to be Simon Illis. So if I'm not like, and I think I was okay if I didn't reach that insane stardom level. Because I've seen some really bad stuff happen. And I know me. I know me very well. And I'm like, man, if I would have been in my 20s and got put in a position with a bank account of, you know, $80 million dollars. And these guys, these artists are gassing me up, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm a thug, I'm a gangster, you know, oh my gosh, I would have been, people would have been looking at me like, yo, you are being the biggest idiot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I would have been that guy. I know it. But I think that's, that's where it was a, a, a good thing that, you know, those kind of bigger things didn't happen mm-hmm. at that time. I feel like once again, I feel like I was thrown in that, in that arena to see like, Hey, this is what your life could be like, but do you really need that? Like, do you really need, because I was like, I just want to make music. If I make a big record, you know, it's almost like my friendships with certain people are more important than, you know, how big of a record Mm -hmm. I make. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, definitely. And you're always, you know, you have those connections with the artists and and, you know, you build that relationship and you're always going to have those memories with them. You know, the record will come or go. People will listen to it and they forget about it. So I, I definitely understand that. And you said something that was interesting. You said, um, you know, you weren't trying to get under somebody to gr- to be groomed because you groomed yourself. Um, so how important is it for, like, you know, people out there who are listening, if they're a designer, a photographer, or musician or whatever, to not wait for someone to give them permission to go after what they want to go after. I'm so glad you said this. That, man, that stopped me so many times. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I was always scared to work with vocalists because I was scared of, like, singing things to them. Mm-hmm. That sounds, like, trivial. No, I, I, I've, I've been in the same boat with I you. I was always parent, but then once I knew, like, I can sing. What am I? I know my voice is different. Like, I started writing for people after that. I started vocal arranging more, and it opened up my world. Because I stopped waiting like for someone to be like, oh, don't be afraid to do this. I was like, nah, screw that. I got to do this. Um, but, you know, and, and it also, and this is kind of a plug, but it, it also came into play when I wrote, you know, what's really become a memoir uh, of sorts of my life. You know, I started out uh, a year and a half ago. Everybody's telling me, man, you should write a book about all these things you've been through and done and it'll be interesting and you know, and I was like, eh, eh, I don't know. And I kept waiting. And I was like, what am I waiting for? Mm-hmm. And I just did it. And it took me a year, you know, but it, 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 it's um, it's done. And, and it's about to come out. But, like, uh, that's that whole thing of, uh, uh, like, you, it goes back to the beginning of what we talked about. Even in my hometown, I wasn't going to wait for permission or someone to tell me. It's like, It comes down to this whole inspiration thing. Mm-hmm. I don't really care for the word. Meaning, if people find what I do inspirational, just because of the wheelchair thing, they're missing the point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, what do you do in spite of your situation? 
You know what I mean? I'm not doing this to inspire people. It's kind of selfish. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I like making records, and that's what I wanted to do. And I kind of just am motivated to get what I want, so that's what I do. Um, but you know that that that's what it comes down to is is uh, you know I'm not I'm not gonna wait. Don't don't tell me what I can do. Like what? Watch me do. I it's much more potent to do something to lead by it's a whole lead by example. Mm-hmm. I can tell people to them blue in the face. Like you can do that. I don't know that. Only you can say that. You know what I mean? Definitely. Like so, it's. It, but that's what le- it led to. You know, and, and with this book and and all these things that are you know uh, transpiring now, and it's just getting even bigger. You know, so you just never know, man. But don't don't wait. Do not wait. That that to all the aspiring creatives, do not wait. Create. I think there's a podcast I listen to. I don't know if you listen to the Nerdist podcast. Um, here, here and there, yeah. Okay. Well, he uh, Chris Hardwick always says uh, something. He it's funny. He says he says make a thing, and I love that. It, it's true. It's like make a thing. It's like you, your podcast. I did a podcast for a while. You know, it's just make a thing. Whatever it is you like to do, if you like photography, if you like videography, make a thing. Create, manifest it. Mm-hmm. Make it tangible. Show the and then show people or let them listen or. But you gotta, you gotta, you know, it's all about manifesting, you know. Yep, and, people, a, and action will, will manifest. So, and people, are, and I think people are scared too of their potential. Mm-hmm. I said this when I was a kid, when I was like twenty three. I said it when somebody interviewed me. I said people are scared of their possibilities. I mean, I am sometimes because <laughs> it's like I can do anything. I mean, good and bad. You know what I mean? Uh, but. Well, you have that, yeah, that power. It kind of reminds me of that meme where it says, you know, um, all the good things in life will happen outside your comfort zone, right? So, it's like, right. I think it is just people just comfortable with what they are. They're comfortable with sitting on a couch watching TV every night instead of, yep. you know, going after what they want. Yep. And you're going to be 70 years old sitting there watching Netflix or uh, YouTube videos. Looking back, like I wish I would have. <laughs> yes, yeah, you can't can't have that. Can't have that. Yeah. All right, my man. I think that's a a perfect place to start, and I, I definitely appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us. And why don't you tell everybody um, where they can find you online, when the book's coming out, how they can find that, and everything. Um, well, they can find me everywhere. Simon Illa. Typically, one word. It's technically two words, but S I M O N I L L A. That is Snapchat. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, my website, simonilla.com. Um, and the book uh, will be coming out later this year. We're waiting on someone to finish the foreword, mm-hmm. um, but it'll be coming out soon-ish. But it'll, <laughs> it'll be within the next six months. It's hard to nail down a date when you're waiting on someone to finish mm-hmm. a part. So, um, but yeah, everybody can you know follow me on those social networks i can keep them updated whatever watch my sometimes stupid videos and snapchats and my my love for starbucks definitely um and is that book gonna be self-published or you got a publisher how's that whole situation you know that that, and this is why yeah i'm about to bring some real life into this podcast that is why i tweeted who i tweeted today yeah i'm I'm gonna connect y'all too yeah i'm definitely gonna connect y'all well the the ironic thing is i would like to self-publish however my editors and due to the, who I can't 
name drop who is writing my foreword. Mm-hmm. But because of that, the nature of that person, they think it could be published on a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. Although, once again, we go back to our principle. I told them that's all well and good, but I'm not waiting too long. Mm-hmm. Because I approached the publisher, and the first thing they say is, well, how many people do you think are going to buy your book? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, I'd love to be able to tell you that. You know what I mean? I don't know, a billion? No. Um, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know. So, you know, but, but I would like to self-publish. I like to keep it almost like a... I look at it like the record business. I'd rather keep it independent. Because mm-hmm. once you go with the big boys, it's like, you know, you lose a lot of your freedom. Yeah, for sure. All yeah. right, everybody. So definitely you guys follow Simon on all the social media platforms. Be on the lookout for his book. I know he's going to go into a lot of uh, more details besides what we just talked about on this podcast as well. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. And I will be buying a copy. And, um yeah, so I appreciate it, man. And everybody listening, thanks for listening to the Creative Masters Podcast. This is Reggie. See you guys next week. So there you have it. That was Episode 7 of the Creative Masters Podcast featuring Simon Illa. You can follow me at Nobody Famous on Twitter and Instagram. Also, if you're a music producer or beat maker and you're looking to learn more about your craft, head over to MachineMasters.com and join the community. And you can follow them at Creative Masters on Instagram and Twitter and follow the podcast at Creative Masters Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Until next week, this is Reggie, a.k.a. Nobody Famous. Peace.